Well, it's that time of year again. It's resolution time. Not sure if you are a resolution kind of person. Is this still going? We have a resolution to talk about at the end of surf. No. <laughs> it's a resolution time. Not sure if you are a resolution person or not. Um, if you are, great. If you're not, fine. Um, if you are and you haven't already, we're about sitting at 13 hours or so. And if you start jotting during service here, I understand. You can, you can take that moment if you need to. But I did start doing some research. And I was curious in the resolution season about how good we are at maintaining the resolutions we intend to keep. And so did some Google and pulled up a couple of studies that have been done and found some interesting research that you may be interested in. I don't know. I certainly was, but found that about 62% of us feel some sort of undue pressure to make a resolution this year, whether internal feeling or external pressure to make a resolution, it feels like a good time. I should sort of turn life around, point it in a different direction. 62% of us along that track. About 80% of the people who make resolutions feel somewhat confident, supremely confident that they can actually pull the resolution off. Pretty high number, right? 80% of us feel supremely confident we can actually pull this off. On the other hand, and I'm guessing about a 14% number there felt more moderately confident because I found that 6% of people think that they can't do it at all, which I think is a pretty funny, kind of admirable way of actually answering the questionnaire, right? You're faced with, what do you want to do next year? Well, I want to do this, and I want to do this, and I want to do this. Do you think you can do it? Absolutely not. And so, like, <laughs> these are my people, 6% of you, we're in this together, right? So 6% of these people feel that they can't actually do it. On the back end, 80% of these people feel supremely confident they'll pull them off. Studies show that about 9% actually do. 9% actually do, which was actually, if I can be honest, higher than I expected. 9% of people keep a resolution. But there is noticeable drop-off, right? From 80% down to 9%. We as Westerners have never been criticized or critiqued for being underest or underestimating ourselves, right? So we think we're super confident about pulling this off, and yet 9% of us actually do. I think hearing those numbers and then just the time of year more broadly sort of bends us into our, our, our mindset that we begin to think that we too need to sort of bend our lives into this resolution way. And it's fine if we do, it's fine if we don't, but there's also carryover into our spiritual lives that we want to recognize. You see, often we carry over this resolution mindset that I'm going to set spiritual disciplines and all of these sorts of things in place, which are good, great, fine, wonderful, but it can also carry over into a mindset that we think that those are our means of earning our way into God's good graces or right standing with him. But I need to pull off this reading plan, this prayer life, this fasting plan exactly as I've laid out in order for God to look upon me and give me his grace and bless me in the ways that I want him to. And we want to lean back against that mindset in so many ways this morning and every day um, because it's not what the scriptures tend to teach us. We'll see in Psalm 1 this morning that we are not working to earn some sort of change or sort of obtain this ever-elusive idea of ch external change in our lives, but that we are working not for change but from change that's already been wrought in our lives. I'm not working to become a better me this year. I'm working from change that's already been wrought in my heart by Christ. He's made me the best me I can be. And I'm working from that position now to go and, and do what the Lord has called me to do. And in so doing, will please him, but not as a means of earning his favor, earning his grace, 
This morning from Psalm 1, we'll learn a lot about this. If you have a copy of the scripture, I would love for you to turn with me uh, to Psalm chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one underneath a seat in front of you that you're able to use this morning. Feel free to pull that out. If you don't own a Bible, we as a church would love to give you one. There's a stack of uh, free Bibles on the table in the back, a sign there that you can go to, pick one up on your way out. We would love for you to take and keep that this morning. And if you're brand new to reading the Bible, as you turn in the Bible, you can sort of split it in half and end up really close to the Psalms, maybe in Isaiah, somewhere around there. Turn back a little bit to the left. When you get to the Psalms, the bigger numbers you'll find there are chapter numbers, the smaller numbers are verses. And we'll be in Psalm 1. We'll read verses 1 through 6 this morning. Psalm 1, 1 through 6. Follow along as I read our passage aloud. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, but the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We'll see from our text this morning this emphasis, that we are to abide in God's word. We are to abide in God's word for our sustenance and our spiritual flourishing. We are to abide in God's word for our sustenance so we can keep going and for our spiritual flourishing. The psalmist here paints life in two directions, doesn't he? The way of the righteous is in view and the way of the wicked. These two paths characterize all of our lives in every single way we can think of. Every day we go out, whatever it is we're doing, wherever we find ourselves, we are on one of these two ways that the psalmist puts forth. The way of the righteous the way of the wicked. And so we'll see how the psalmist weaves his way through these two paths of life and where we are to find ourselves on that. It is good for us to take advantage of this time of year and all of the hoopla that surrounds thinking about what's ahead for us, that we might answer the question, even as we look at Psalm 1 today, that we might answer the question, which way? Which way for 2024? Which way will we go? So the psalmist here has the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous, moving back and forth between the two. Before we jump into Psalm 1 verse by verse, I want to kind of flip the psalm upside down because there's an important basis and an important foundation that we ought to be working with as we read through it. As we get into Psalm 1, it could feel a lot like there are a lot of do's and a lot of do nots. A lot of things I should be doing perhaps in this new year and a lot of things that I should be peeling off of. And it can feel very heavy in the sense, it can feel very much like a to-do list, like something else I need to go out of this room this morning and pull off. And yet, the psalm also bends us into what reality actually is for us, that this is and won't ever be about our do's and our do-nots, yet who we are in Christ. We see this at the end of the psalm, and so I want to pay attention to Psalms uh, 1-6 first, move it to the top, and set this as a foundation as we consider the rest of Psalm 1 and what the psalmist has for us this morning. Psalm 1-6 says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. 
which wouldn't stand out to us except that we know that God knows the way of everyone. God knows the way of everyone. And so why would the psalmist here in verse 6 say that he knows the way of the righteous? All throughout the Old Testament, we see psalms here leaning up against the Old Testament in the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, this word knows is laden with deeper meaning, loaded with meaning that's just below the surface of the word we read. So when it says that God knows, that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, we know that he has known the way of the righteous in a way he has not known the way of others. He has known it more intimately. He has been more interested in. He has been more invested in. He knows the way of the righteous because he has made a way for us to be righteous. This is who our God is, intimately concerned with the lives of those whom he has saved. He knows the way of the righteous. And this gives us all the comfort in the world this morning. Whenever I come to scripture and I read a do, and I read a do not, I don't feel the same pressure I felt to go and pull this off on my own. He knows your way. He knows my way. He knows the way of the righteous. He is intimately involved and concerned with our way. And this is the blessed foundation and, and, and rootedness that we work from now as we move throughout Psalm 1 and consider what our lives are to look like as we walk in faithful obedience to the Lord. He has known us in this way through Jesus. Now I have every reason to go and live for him. I'm not striving for external change. I'm not beating myself up when it doesn't happen. He has known me intimately in a deeper way than I could ever imagine. And so with that understanding, when the psalmist speaks to the blessed man, the righteous man, he's speaking to the man or woman that God has known in this way. God has rescued, that God has plucked out of misery and has set on a high place, on firm ground. And he's giving us the impetus we need now to go and follow suit. He has known our way. And with that, we can look at how the psalm describes in blessed one, this blessed man or woman, this blessed individual. When we think of the word blessed, some people might wish to substitute the idea of happiness or a joyful person. This is being blessed. But we don't want to miss the more holistic sense the psalmist has in mind here. When he says the blessed man or the righteous man, he has in mind sort of a whole life flourishing. All of life is blessed. This is a deep set blessedness, a deep set kind of joy. This person is now working from this status and this belonging now in Christ, in the presence of God. Blessed is this man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, verse 1, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So we see here the psalmist pulls out three approaches or arenas or aspects of our lives. He walks, stands, and sits. These are things that we're going to do naturally every single day. We're going to walk we're going to stand, we're going to sit. This is the rhythm of our lives. And per his instruction on the back end of each of these actions, what the psalmist has in view here is how these actions frame our entire lives. When he talks of the man who walks, he's going to talk about how the man thinks, how the man uses his mind and processes wisdom. It's about the mind. When the man stands, he's going to talk about how the man actually lives, goes and applies this wisdom. This is how we actually carry out our days. And when the man sits, he's going to talk about the company with which he sits. Who is he in the presence of while he's sitting? 
And this is how we're now applying wisdom and living out our lives, but this is also about the company we keep. And so you can see multiple angles here that the psalmist is now approaching our lives from. No matter where you go, the way you think, the way you live, and the company you keep are, are worthy of constant evaluation, constant check-ins. What is this like in my life? What's the trajectory of this area of my life? Is it imbibing nearness to God? Or is it moving me steadily away from him? As I think about the way that I'm walking, as I think about the way that I'm processing decisions and getting wise counsel, is this moving me into nearness with God? Or is it moving me steadily away? As I'm applying wisdom to my life and actually living my day to day, am I doing that in a way that pleases the Lord? Or am I moving away? And then finally, as I look around me and the company that I keep, the inputs that I have in my life are these honoring God. Are they moving me away? He's approaching life from so many different angles, and it's worth consideration and constant evaluation for those who are now tethered to God in Christ, worthy of our constant consideration. The psalmist doesn't say that we're not going to walk, stand, or sit. He says this is going to be a natural part of life. You're going to think, you're going to live, you're going to spend time with people. The question is trajectory, proximity. Are these things moving us toward nearness to God, or are they moving us away? In verse 1, he says, blessed is the man who walks, but not in the counsel of the wicked. So as we think about these inputs we have for wisdom in our lives, as we're processing and making decisions, as we're going throughout our day-to-day wondering which way we might go or what we might do, where is this wisdom coming from primarily? It's not to eschew worldly wisdom in toad and say that I have no use for it, It's to chasten it by our time spent in God's word, time in prayer, time with brothers and sisters who love us and know us well, who are aligning our thoughts, our decision, our wisdom with God's wisdom. This is what we're called to. We're called not to walk in the way and the counsel of the wicked. We're called to walk in the wisdom of God over and over throughout our Bibles. The Bible instructs us to walk in the way of wisdom and not in the way of folly. You'll see this in Proverbs over and over again. Walk according to godly wisdom and not folly. Align yourself with godly wisdom and not folly. We'll see in a minute how the psalmist suggests we do that naturally and practically in our day-to-day lives. But for now, be worth considering. What are these inputs of wisdom in your life, in my life? Where do we naturally go and run to when we feel we don't have an answer that we might need? When we feel we don't have peace? Where are my go-tos? Who are my sources? Of wisdom. Secondly, in verse 1, the psalmist talks of standing in the way of sinners. So if walking had to do with the way that we process our decisions and our wisdom inputs, then standing here has to do with how we apply that wisdom and now live our day-to-day lives. Are we living on the way to nearness with God or are we living in the way of sinners? Kind of black and white here for us in the text, right? Proximity, direction, How are we actually applying now wisdom to our lives? Often when we have family or friends come into town and we've had bigger groups come in for like study tours in Boston and things like this, but we'll take time and we'll go down to the T and we'll have a learn how to get around our city session, right? If you're going to not use a car here, you know, sometimes advisable, often not, but yeah, right? You can kind of balance that. But if you're going to get around our city, here's how you'll actually do that. And a very key part of teaching someone how to use the T here in Boston is saying something like, if you are at Porter Square and you wish to end up at Park Street, 
do not get on the train that goes to Alewife, right? And so this is a very basic form of communication and instruction, but I always frame that in such a way just to leave the off chance that the MBTA wows us. So I always say, if you get on a train going to Alewife, expect that you won't get to Park Street, but maybe, right? <laughs> so we always caveat here. But the general principle holds, and the general principle is true, and it's maybe even too basic to be saying in a context like this, that whatever path we're on corresponds and correlates to the destination we end up. There's that age-old saying about holiness and godliness in our lives that no one stumbles into godliness. You and I aren't waking up on the day today saying, oh, wow, by surprise, I'm contending with my sin. I'm engaged with God in ways I thought I wouldn't be. I'm pursuing godliness in the way that I should be by accident. No one stumbles into godliness. It's often true the other way too, that no one intentionally moves towards sin. No one intentionally moves in the way of sinners. And yet, what the psalmist is encouraging us to do today, this morning, is to take a step back and evaluate where am I headed? In what direction am I pointed? Direction correlates, corresponds to the destination we end up. And the psalmist says that we're not to be on the way of sinners, lest we end up where they end up. To be on the way of the righteous, applying wisdom in all the ways we should. We're to be moving towards proximity and nearness to God. And he'll show us what that means practically in verse 2. Third in our text, it says that this man, blessed is the man who, nor, um, who sits, who does not sit, in the seat of scoffers. So we have a third category, walking and standing and now sitting. If walking had to do with the way that we're processing and making decisions and standing had to do with the way we're living our lives, sitting now has to do with the company that we keep. Don't sit in the seat of scoffers. Be immersed by what they're doing. There's a way in which we begin to imbibe the things of this world unknowingly, perhaps, but over and over again, we find that we're more malleable, more influenced by the company we keep than we expect. In our own independent thinking, we think we're capable of decision-making and all of these things as if we come up with ideas and thoughts on our own, and yet we fail to realize how over time, just the grind of being exposed and being around different influences and different voices in our lives begins to shape and mold our hearts in ways that we wish they weren't. Not true for everyone and not true wholesale, but true often. Often enough that the psalmist here now encourages us, do not sit in the seat of scoffers, those who would encourage you in this posture toward the world. He specifically mentions the idea of scoffing here, or we might say mocking. And this is generally applicable, right? We wouldn't take a posture of scoffing in our general lives, but even more so applicable to those with whom we disagree. We see this prevalent in our culture. If we disagree with somebody, the impulse we have to make fun of them first, rather than to understand or reason, or to peel back and understand who they are and what they're about. Are we quick to make that judgment in our own hearts, in our own lives? Are we quick to make the quick joke, to get the funny laugh, to post the funny meme, rather than understanding where a person's coming from, what it is that's contributed to their decision, the belief that they have? Are we quick to go ad hominem and attack the person themselves beyond their thoughts, beyond their ideas? and tear them down, such that we sin in our own response to them, but also rob them of the God-given dignity that they already have. 
It's important how we treat those around us. It's important that we not assume this scoffing posture toward the world, particularly with those with whom we disagree. Consider our witness in the world and what this means, that we don't assume the seat of scoffers, that we seek to understand first, that we seek to encourage, and then we seek, yes, to engage with ideas that ought to be torn down. We engage on that level, but we do so with a posture of humility and understanding, a posture that does not assume the seat of scoffing first. And these are the ways in which the psalmist now encourages us to take a step back and evaluate our lives. Walking, standing, and sitting. We're going to be thinking constantly about decisions we need to make on a day-to-day. And this new year, we'll do it frequently over the next few days. We're going to be applying this wisdom from our day-to-day, from the time our feet hit the floor to the time that our head hits the pillow. We'll be applying this wisdom to our life. And we'll be around people constantly to the introvert's great chagrin. What kind of company are we keeping? Evaluate your life in this way. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The deal here is proximity. The deal here is perspective. In all of these relating relationships, in all of this way of being, this way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, the, the deal here is perspective. Where are we coming at this from? With what foundation and basis are we thinking through these kinds of issues with? And the psalmist provides us with that too. You want right perspective on these things? Where does this right perspective come from? And interestingly, in verse two, the psalmist attaches this right perspective to a matter of delight. Because here's what's true as he identifies all these ways of walking in the ways of the wicked. Walk not in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers. All of these ways are what come pretty naturally to us. Apart from Christ, these are actually the things that we most want and what we most desire. To scoff is what we enjoy. Make no mistake about it. And yet, Christ has wrought this change in our lives in such a way that when we begin to scoff, there's a check in our spirit. In the seat of scoffers, we begin to squirm a little bit. Christ has wrought change in our lives in such a way that if we are moving and headed steadfastly towards sin, there's a check in our spirit. Christ has wrought change in such a way that we have a check in our spirit when we're moving now in the way of sinners. When we're receiving counsel of the wicked, something sounds a little bit off. Christ has wrought change in such of our lives that we no longer delight in the things that we used to delight in. And the psalmist here now pegs the converse of all of this and delight in the law of God. Read with me, verse two. Blessed is the man who doesn't do all of these things, verse two, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The psalmist knows what we know is true about ourselves. And not only do these things come naturally to us, they are what we most enjoy. And he says now, because of the change that's been wrought in us, that we enjoy different things. We enjoy different things. He says the psalmist is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. And the law of the Lord, the word law here not taken to mean all of the various laws that we can find throughout the Old Testament, throughout Scripture, but the teaching, the instruction of the, more, of the Lord more generally. So we would say our Bibles, that the man who is not doing these things is the one who delights in the Scriptures. And he meditates on them day and night, meditates on them day and night. It's coming to this book with expectation, not begrudging. It's coming to this book wide-eyed and expectant, 
that God might show me himself in it. And he might show me who I am in the process. It's coming to this book and expecting it to yield all that it promises it will yield. And this is what begins to cultivate this deep sense of delight in God's word that we're meant to have. This isn't a trip to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum and just looking at the paintings on the wall and then moving on to the next thing on our schedule. This is standing in the Isabella Gardner and looking through the painting as if it were a window, John Piper would say, wondering about the artist's intent, wondering about his motives, admiring his technique. I'm looking at the Bible like it's a window into another world, God's world. And finding answers to that age-old question that you and I might have, is there actually meaning stored up here? And gloriously, gloriously for us, the answer is yes. Meaning is stored up in this. And it's worth our pursuit to go now read and find that over time as we give ourselves to the reading of this word that we delight in it, that we enjoy it. The psalmist says that this man delights in the law of the Lord. He loves going to it such that he meditates on on it every chance he gets. You may say, that's pretty impractical, Mike. My boss would fire me day one by meditating on the Lord all day and all night. And yeah, what we find in reading this word is that it has a funny way of seeping down into our hearts in ways that we wouldn't otherwise expect. We can sort of meditate as we go. We can sort of reflect as we go. And this begins to exude things in our life that we wouldn't otherwise expect. We have a way of meditating on the law of the Lord that goes beyond merely sitting and staring at its contents. The Lord stores these things up in our hearts as we are confronted with them and we're changed by them as we go. And there's really no reason to overcomplicate this. So if you took away from this sermon today that I need to read my Bible more, I would check a box in my like secret little checklist back here. That's what we ought to take away is that I should read my Bible more. If we study it for four hours and peruse all of its original language meanings and put together its syntax and do all of this in our free time, I'm going to check a few more boxes, but I won't tell you about it. No, I'm saying if we do that, fine. But the goal here, the encouragement here from me to you this morning is just to read it, to read some of it, to put yourself in the way of this word and see how that might counteract the way of the wicked, to put yourself in the way of God's word today and in 2024. We ought not overcomplicate this, and I found this to be true as I was looking online. Our friends at Crossway Publishers in recent years have published some data on Bible reading that I thought was helpful and interesting, and I'll spare you all the intricate details of what they did, but they put together a series of infographics that I found really helpful. And the infographics kind of framed how long it would take to read one book of the Bible and each book of the Bible, and then how long it would take to read the Old Testament, how long it would take to read the New Testament, the whole Bible. And then they had some infographics that were really convicting. They were like, you spend too much time on your phone. And I was like, scroll, 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 don't want to, you know, don't want to look at that, right? But they have all these, these helpful tools that kind of show us how we ought not overcomplicate this. Average reading speed, if you read average speed, The longest book in the Bible, which is the collection of the book of Psalms that we're starting in today, would take you, average reading speed, four hours and 51 minutes to read. Four hours, 51 minutes. You're saying, that's that's a lot. Not going to take five hours and read the whole Psalms, but you get the point here, right? We divide over days. If I take 10 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day, I'm finishing the Psalms in two and a half weeks, something like this. 
Four hours, 51 minutes for the longest book of the Bible. And then as it averages out, and as you kind of look at the chart, you get more encouraged along the way because you realize that the shortest books of the Bible, two letters to 2 and 3 John, actually only take two minutes to read. Two minutes of your day to read a book of the Bible. And it begins to spell out book by book, and what it amounts to is that if you were to take, or I were to take, average reading speed, nine minutes a day reading our Bibles, we could read the entire Old Testament in one year. Nine minutes a day. At only three minutes a day, spend 12 minutes total reading your Bible, and you could read the whole Bible in a year. 12 minutes a day. As I read that, I was like, what do I do for 12 minutes? And I didn't want to think about that too long because I got convicted again. And so I was like, 12 minutes a day reading the Bible. I could read this whole word and see what all it is that God has stored up in it for me. This isn't to come down on you in any way for not reading your Bible, but just to encourage you along the way and say, are we overcomplicating this? If we're to not walk in the ways of the wicked or to consider too greatly the counsel of the wicked, if we're to not sit in the seat of scoffers, but to delight in God's word, how will we get there? By picking it up, by picking it up and encouraging one another to read it. There are a massive amount of helps along the way out there for us, available to us now. There are Bible reading plans and even versions, translations of the Bible that help us in this way. We'd love to talk uh, more with you if you're interested in any of that after service through email. Uh, we have 12 hours. I could send you some stuff real quick, right? And so we could get on the train with that. And so if you are interested in any of those practical helps, would encourage you in that way and we'd be glad to help. But the main point I want to drive home here is there is a place that we're supposed to be in terms of our joy and our delight that the psalmist is pegging for us, that our delight ought to be in the law of the Lord, and on his law we meditate day and night. But what's the cumulative effect of all of this? Where does this land us? Where do we end up? Are we able at the end of the year to check our resolution box? Or are we a different person because of it? Because we now delight in God's word. Let's look at the rest of the psalm, and we'll push towards a close, about how it describes the person who is enamored with God's word in this way. This person that's enamored with the law of the Lord, how does the psalmist describe him? Verse three, he is like a tree. He's planted by streams of water. Listen, planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Do you get the imagery here? The one who delights in the law of the Lord, who delights in the word of God, is like one who's planted first. He's stable. There's a calmness about him. It's not pervasive. It's not that every day I read my Bible, now I'm going to be the most non-anxious presence in the world. Will I be more of one? That's what he's saying. If I put myself in the way of God's word and give myself to the reading of it and all that the Lord might wreck in my heart because of it, if I give myself to the word of, the God, to the word of God in this way and delight in it, I'm like one who's planted, that there's a stability about me that people notice, that I notice that the Lord's doing. Planted by streams of water near to the source of life, 
all the resources we need for life and godliness, we're like a tree now planted right beside it. Not planted out in the middle of the desert trying to make it on our own, scrapping and clawing for a way to make it through life, but planted right beside the very thing that we need for sustenance, for our spiritual flourishing. We're now abiding here like a plant beside the river. It's getting in season everything it needs and out of season getting everything it needs. It says that in season, the person that's planted beside the river in this way does exactly what they're expected to. The plant needs to yield and produce and give all that it's supposed to give in season and it's able to, has the resources it needs. And yet the striking thing about the person planted next to the river is that he also, out of season, does not wither. In the season that he's expected to dry up and wilt and be thrown and tossed to and fro, to be rattled and shut down and destroyed, he's able to do the very same thing he is in season because he has the resources that he needs. He doesn't wither. He's not thrown to and tossed about by the waves of life in this way. It says that in all he does, he prospers, which is a funny word that we ought to deal with at this time of year as well because the psalmist doesn't have in mind simply health or merely wealth, a better way of becoming a better version of you. The psalmist has in mind the version of you that's near to God, becoming more like Christ. And this is the plant that's now planted next to the resources, the streams of water that yields its fruit both when it's supposed to and out of season when nobody thought it would. There's a stability to this person that now is enamored and delights in God's word in this way. One commentator on this passage actually says about this immunity of withering, that immunity granted here, the fact that the leaf doesn't wither, is not a promise to escape the seasons, right? The fact that the leaf won't, won't wither, the fact that we're now held stronger than we were, rooted in God's word, that doesn't mean that life won't happen. You and I will read this word tomorrow, the next day, and the next day for 12 minutes, all three of those days, and then we'll get the worst phone call of our life right? This is what happens. How do we square this with our experience? Life will still go on. The seasons will still happen. Immunity does not mean immunity from the season. Immunity means here that he's able to withstand that season when it comes. The roots are now driven deeper than they were before, able to withhold and withstand all that might come our way. The truth is life will still deal us haymakers, the question is, where will we remain tethered when the haymakers come? The psalmist is encouraging us, and I'm encouraging us this morning, stay tethered to God's word. Find yourself as a, plant, as a tree planted by the resource, all you need for life's sustenance, all you need for life's, life and godliness. He contrasts this person to the chaff, the way of the wicked. If the person who's enamored and delights in God's law is the one whose roots are sunk deep, then the one who's not is the one who is wind-tossed, blown about by the wind by every thing that happens in culture more broadly, in personal lives, family lives, whatever we might think of along these terms. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Departure, moving away and not nearer to the Lord. There's a sense of rootedness that we ought to be about, that we ought to be encouraging one another to. Now you see why I wanted to root this passage in the way that I did. 
Because if we leave here today thinking that it's incumbent upon ourselves to make this happen, we'll feel overwhelmed from the jump. And yet, what we know is true per the end of the Psalm in verse six here is that we have this rootedness already laid for us. Christ is working this rootedness in our hearts even now as we hear from his word. That Christ is working this in our hearts as we come into a place like this and sing together. That Christ is working this in our hearts as we gather in the new year and groups in everyone's homes and kind of look at each one, uh, one another in that space. Christ is working this rootedness in us when we turn to a loving brother or sister and ask them for help. Christ is working this rootedness in us when we, as the loving brother or sister, turn and remind our brother and sister in need of the gospel and who they are in Jesus and that we're gonna make it because we're planted beside this stream that gives us sustenance and gives us what we need for spiritual flourishing. Christ is working all of this in us, this rootedness that we need, and that's great hope for us today. The rest of the psalm says that the wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. A little play on words. As the psalmist was talking about how the righteous man stands and the righteous man sits, it's now apparent that the wicked man will not sit in the same way. Will not sit in the same way. There's not this rootedness about him. In verse 6, where we end up, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the gospel story. That the Lord has known the way of the righteous, that the Lord has been intimately concerned with, involved in. Those who are now living their lives to glorify him through Christ. The Lord has known your way, believer, in this room this morning, and that gives us motivation and impetus to now go and live our lives for him. The fact that the Lord has known my way makes me eager now to go and find him here in his word. If he has known my way, now I want to know more about him. I want to know more about his way and what that might hold for my future. The Lord has known my way, but the way of the wicked will perish. Perhaps you're in the room today and you would say, I'm just here because I felt like December 31st before 2024 was a good time to be back in a place like this. I said last week and want to reaffirm, that's a great impulse to have. And if this is your very first time back in a church or maybe you're exploring Christianity or asking questions about what all this is, who this Jesus is that's at the center and the heart of it all, we welcome you here and we're glad that you're here today. And we invite those questions and want to hash that out. Over coffee and conversation and over meal, we invite the questions. But we want to encourage you as well to heed the message of scripture, even Psalm 1, as the psalmist tells us, that the Lord has known the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked will perish. This morning, hope for us is not laid up in whether we pull the resolution off or not. Hope is not laid up for us in whether we get the resolutions made by 1159 tonight. Hope for us is in a person, in the personal work of Jesus Christ who has come, he has been born to die. He lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death on our behalf and he was gloriously resurrected. And one day he'll come again and set all things to rights. And this is the story that undergirds our living, our moving, everything that we're about both here at Hope and more broadly as the church that claims to follow him.